So I want to uh, thank everybody for helping with this endeavor. I'll tell a little story for those who uh, don't know the background. But the bankers started uh, this great tradition, and uh, it grew and grew. I was uh, often the moderator at the event out at the Alliant uh, Energy Center. Hundreds of people, um, and you know, a great, great event. And then COVID sidetracked things. So I called Rose Oswald Poles, uh, who leads the Bangers Association, earlier this year, and said, hey, let's not let a good thing die. So Rose uh, marshaled her organization, <laughs> and then did back-to-back -back, uh, uh, lobby day and this. Uh, so her staff is stressed, and uh, so is she. But I think, uh, Rose, congratulations. We filled the room. Yeah, good, thank you. Yeah. And uh, I want to thank all the, uh, all the trade associations and groups that uh, agreed to buy a table to get us uh, jump-started on this again. And uh, hopefully we can make it a, uh, an annual event in person once again. So I, I want to go through the list. It's a long list, but uh, everybody uh, deserves credit. The Wisconsin Realtors Association, the Wisconsin Counties Association, the Wisconsin Builders Association, the Grocers Association, the Hospital Association, Transportation Builders Association, the Wisconsin Technology Council, Construction Business Group, North Central States Regional Council of Carpenters, Operating Engineers Local 139, Wisconsin Farm Bureau Federation, and I think I got everybody. If I forgot anybody, you can scold me later. But anyway, thanks to everybody. And give every, all the partnering organizations around this applause. <laughs> so, Wiz Politics and Wiz Business, uh, you know, um, helped with this. And, uh, uh, and just as a, uh, a matter of advertisement, uh, we have our annual printed directory and uh, if you don't have a copy of that for your next lobby day or you need to call on a legislator, uh, go see Colin Schmees in the back and you can get your copies of those. So the way we're going to do this today, uh, we're going to cram a lot of information into uh, a couple hours here, try to be timely and uh, try to be informative. We're going to start off with a panel uh, of experts about uh, the state and regional economy and we're going to hear from a national economist from Wells Fargo Bank, and we'll be doing the introductions here. So uh, we're gonna start off with the panel, and I wanna introduce our, our panelists. So I'm gonna start off uh, down at the end with uh, Todd Matina. He's the uh, chief economist for, the, for SWIFT. That's the, uh, the folks that run the state pension system and uh, keep all the state employees happy in their retirement. We have uh, David Clark, and uh, David is a Marquette University uh, economics prof who handles housing stats uh, for the Realtors Association. So thanks very much, David. Dale Knapp, forward analytics economist, tracks uh, a lot of great state data uh, and is associated with the Wisconsin <laughs> Counties Association. And Cynthia Erdman, and Cynthia is our Representative of Main Street here. So she's president of Farmers and Merchants Bank of Kendall, Wisconsin. So let's just start off, uh, and uh, we're gonna go down the line here. You know, so our, our stat today, our information stat today is that the first quarter national economy grew uh, a little over 1%. So 
I think the Fed's uh, interest rate uh, strategy seems to be working. The question is, what's the balance and how is it affecting people in Wisconsin and businesses in Wisconsin? So why don't we just start off with you, Cynthia, and uh, tell us what you see on your end of things. All right, good afternoon, or I guess it's afternoon, everybody. So um, what's, what's it like in the banking world these days? Well, a lot going on, but from our customer's perspective, I would say this. Um, they're getting really tired on the borrowing side. They're getting really tired of interest rate hikes. Um, uh, if they're uh, lucky enough to not be in a borrowing position, obviously they're happy to have some um, good CD rates that are very competitive out there right now. Um, but what, what we're seeing is just uh, businesses, and I'm more of in an ag community, we're seeing some stress. Uh, you know, the interest rates, rates have climbed over the last uh, year, year and a half, and they've climbed at a very, fairly fast pace. So as uh, loans are coming new or due and um, renewing, uh, it's starting to stress the system a little bit, um, you know, which cash flow stress, uh, uh, trickles down into being a little bit more careful on capital expenditures, being a little bit more uh, resourceful. Um, and I won't get into labor a little bit now, but for the most part, um, you know, they're holding, holding pretty, pretty steady. You know, credit quality remains uh, pretty good. Um, you know, uh, I think uh, especially uh, bankers in local communities have a good feel for, for their clients. We're here to help. Um, we're doing a, a good job of working uh, through them uh, as an industry, um, I fully uh, believe. And I think uh, as we see probably one more interest rate hike here, uh, that's in, I think, in the banking world, at least in my little small regional area. We've kind of already built that in, so I, I, see, I see the horizon looking a little brighter. Um, so that's just kind of my overall Take All right, moment. optimism. We so. love that. Love that. All right, Dale. What's it look like? Uh, what's the state of the economy look like uh, from your seat? Yeah. So all of the the national numbers they they've always affected Wisconsin in in a similar way. And so, you know, with a 1.1 percent increase out, slowing growth, we're probably going to expect that. But really, from my perspective, what's holding Wisconsin back um, really is two things, and that's. Um, demographics, and I've talked about this, this quite a bit, you know, we know with the, the uh, baby boom retiring, we don't have enough migration coming in, so we have that, that issue. Um, but the, there's another issue that, that's really holding Wisconsin business back, and that's labor force participation. Um, our labor force, the size of our labor force, peaked in July of 2017. Um, the, 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 the participation rate, the, the number of, of, of people who are actually eligible to be working but are, and are in the labor force was at 69%. Um, we were top 10 in the country. It's now at 64.5%, down almost five points. That's what's holding us back. And, and, and it's driven by a lot of things, but um, we're seeing small declines nationally. We're seeing much bigger decline, declines in Wisconsin. and so. Wisconsin really has a people problem that's being exacerbated by this significant decline, declines in workforce participation that we need to figure out what the reasons are and we need to be able to, to address them if we're gonna see Wisconsin's economy grow. 
Okay, we're going to come back and talk about the labor shortage uh, in depth. So, uh, uh, Professor Clark, uh, what's, uh, what's the state of the economy for this evening? Well, certainly we're uh, in, a, in a period that uh, we've... That we, whoop. Eat, eat your mic. Yeah. There you All go. right. Does this work? Yeah. All right. Um, we're certainly in, a, in an environment where uh, growth has been slowing. Um, you know, we, we had the first two quarters of, of last year were actually negative, but they were, I mean, essentially flat. They bounced up a little bit in the, the second half mm -hmm. of the year. So to see the advanced number come out for, for GDP that was at 1.1% was a little bit disappointing. Uh, there was a, an expectation that that would, that would be, uh, uh, well, an anticipation that might be a little bit higher. But it's, I think it's easy to see why we're in this situation. I mean, the Fed's in a tough spot. Um, you know, they, they still do not have uh, inflation near where their target is, which is around 2%. Mm -hmm. Um, it's come down. It was 9.1 percent when we were at uh, in, in in June on an, on an annual basis. Uh, it's down to 5 percent. So we've made progress, but um, you know they they really don't have a whole lot of tools in their in their arsenal right now. Uh, and and rising uh, uh, increasing uh, short-term interest rates is is uh, the, the one tool that they've been using. Um, the challenge they have is they don't want to overly stress the banking system. And so, uh, as a consequence, I think we're, we're likely to see, you know, best case scenario, you're likely to see slow growth uh, and hopefully uh, continued progress on, on inflation. All right, Todd? Okay, thank you. Hopefully everybody can hear me. Uh, yeah, and thanks so much. It's really a pleasure to be part of the event and, and join this uh, distinguished panel. Uh, so from my seat at uh, SWIB, where I lead the um, asset and risk allocation group, I'm more of a financial economist and even an international uh, macro economist. Mm -hmm. I used to work at the International Monetary Fund for 10 years. So I guess my perspective is local, but also a little bit international. Um, so from my seat, I would say, I would agree with much the, of what's already been said. I think the first quarter this year turned out to be surprisingly resilient, despite what we saw in today's number. The headline number of growth uh, at an annualized pace of 1.1% doesn't sound that impressive, but when you start to get into the numbers, Personal consumption spending, so that's like household spending, was very strong, uh, just under 4% at an annualized pace, which is quite, quite a healthy and strong pace. So underlying demand in the economy is very strong. And I think that's what's really interesting, and it goes to the point that was just raised, that the Fed has a real policy dilemma on its hands. So if the Fed wants to, to fight inflation, which is currently running, I'm going to call it 5% or more at an annualized pace, it needs to keep rates higher for longer, and that's the guidance the Fed has been giving us. On the other hand, if it keeps rates higher for longer to get inflation under control, it risks jeopardizing the regional banking system, uh, which has already shown some signs of stress, and that's continuing this week with First Republic Bank. So there's a real policy dilemma there, and um, our view is that we're likely to see, going into the second half of this year, a significant slowdown in the pace of U.S. economic growth and also for other high-income advanced economies out there, we're likely to see a significant slowdown in the pace of economic growth. And inflation staying high and sticky, so it's kind of the worst of both worlds, as, as others have noted out there, we're likely to see inflation coming down to, let's call it a 3.5% pace, depending on your favorite inflation measure. So it's, it's a difficult environment I think we're heading into in the second half of this year. It's interesting to see that financial markets are pricing in 
two or even three rate hikes by the end of the year, uh, or sorry, rate cuts by the Federal Reserve by the end of this year, which is really a, a, a dissonance with what the Fed has been saying, where the Fed is telling us that they're gonna keep rates higher for longer. So it's gonna be interesting to see if the Fed moves towards the market pricing or the other way around. Um, our view is that the market's probably gotten a little bit ahead of itself in thinking that we're gonna see these uh, aggressive rate cuts uh, over the coming period. Um, this is important. I would say the other key issue is um, not only, and I think we'll talk more about this on the panel, is the sort of the real economic, the, the impact for the real economy of the regional banking turmoil we've seen. Uh, but there's other factors as well, other risk factors, including the debt ceiling uh, debate, which is coming up. And uh, you know, the US fiscal picture hasn't gotten a lot of headlines uh, post-pandemic. It's really been about inflation in the Fed, but I think we're gonna start to see more and more attention on the US fiscal picture coming to light, um, regardless of where you stand on the debt ceiling. And I think that's a good thing in the sense that there's a lot of work that needs to be done on the US fiscal front, uh, which is more of a longer term policy issue. Uh, for, the, for the U.S. and a lot of other high-income advanced economies as well that have come out of COVID with much higher debt levels and much bigger budget deficits. Um, so our outlook, uh, just to sum it up, is a period of slowing economic growth in the second half with still high and sticky inflation um, coming down and we're likely to see the Fed achieve its 2% inflation target maybe later in 2024, even early 2025 at this pace. Um, so a lot more work to do, so it could be a bit of a bumpier ride in the second half. Okay, so nobody said, I don't think, I think I was listening, nobody said recession, right? So, but apparently if you took a poll, a lot of people, I mean, you know, citizens think we're headed for recession. So are we? Let's just start with you, Todd. Yeah, so I think the odds of a recession have definitely gone up. So. Um, we saw in the first quarter, I think it was mentioned, that the headline number was much lower than expected. 1.1%, people were expecting something closer to 2%. So just, we've already got one quarter in, it, it's lower than expected. Some of the other recent indicators are decelerating, also looks like we're heading into a slowdown in the second half. Depends how you define recession. This is a bit of an uh, economist wonky kind of uh, discussion about you know, what is a recession. If you just use sort of the practitioner's definition of, of two quarters of negative growth, then I think the odds are pretty good that we could see that in Q3 and Q4 this year. Um, I think that's not out of consensus in terms of many economists' views at this point. Okay, so the economic stats seem to be great though, right? I mean, other than inflation. And if the Fed just said uh, our target's uh, 4% instead of 2%, well, we'd be really close to beating that, right? So, but, but you know, the stats are great. But people don't feel good, and uh, you know, uh, again, you know, recession may be on the horizon. Are we all fooling ourselves, or? What's I, going on? I, I would argue not all the stats are great. Okay. A, lo a lot of the ones that we see are, are great. Um, M2, the money supply in, in, in the U.S., which is a measure of uh, basic bank deposits, checking accounts, etc., um, has been declining rapidly, and it's down about four percent year over year, which is something really un unprecedented. That generally foretells a recession. Um, in the fourth quarter of last year, uh, in terms of, of, of new ho uh, residential housing, um, rental units essentially um, outpaced single family, which 
historically has been an indicator of recessions, that housing often drives it. So there are some numbers out there that are, and, and you look at consumer confidence that came out in April. Um, the, the, the numbers in the, the, the first quarter in terms of consumer spending were very good, but the consumer confidence numbers that came out here in April um, are showing the biggest, you know, they're the lowest they've been since last July. So the, the, the consumer is a little bit wary. And you're saying they should be? I think they should be, yes. Okay. But I'm not allowed to say the R word. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the inflation problem is going to be a, a, a more persistent problem than, um, that, than we might, might think. So we, we've, again, we've come down from 9.1 to, to 5 uh, between, if you look at the last nine months. The problem, uh, and, and I'm looking at this from the perspective of the housing market. The housing market has a significant shortage of housing. That has been driving up prices at near double digit rates on an annualized basis. Um, if you look at the components of CPI, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 22% of that weight is uh, attributed to housing. Um, and this, you know, the, the shortage that we've been saying, we've got 2.2 months of available supply, a balanced market is six months. And we have not made progress on that uh, in, in, in several years. And so I think that uh, it's gonna be a while before we, uh, the Fed is going to ultimately be able to achieve uh, something uh, near their target rate. And by a while, I mean you know, two, to three, two to three years uh, uh, potentially. I think they'll still make progress. But getting down to that 2% range, that's gonna be challenging. And of course, that ultimately then drives um, uh, the long-term mortgage rates. And that's, that, that's the, those are the factors that really impact the housing market. Now, if I can just add uh, housing market in kind of rural area where I am at, uh, prices are still elevated, but we have seen them not be quite as crazy. Um, there's still multiple offers when a property is listed. Um, you got to get to the table quick, be pre-approved and all of that. But we are seeing that be a little bit more reasonable, although still elevated. Um, there is still certainly a shortage. Um, it, it's very few properties uh, available. So, you know, I think when prices were really elevated, we saw more activity because if, especially for those that were maybe even close to um, retirement or wanting to downsize, it was a great time for them to look at that. But of course, if you're uh, younger and just trying to replace that, you're not gaining anything. But uh, I guess from a standpoint, we are, I guess I'm seeing that there is maybe a little bit more normalcy. Um, but again, a shortage uh, from housing, I think is pretty much all over. So I would definitely agree with that. So Cynthia, you know, these regional bank, common regional bank uh, failures, troubles, how did that seep down to your customers? Did they care? Do they do they worry? Um, you know, how does it affect the way you do business? Sure, uh, good question. Um, Wisconsin is a lot different than uh, what you're hearing in the news about all of these regional banks. Uh, it's you know we're not we're not uh, single lender source people. We we aren't heavy in a tech sector or something that's very volatile. We um, lend to all across the board. We have house loans, we have commercial loans, we have small business, we have home equity, we have car loans. Um, you know, that's what your mainstream normal 
bank in Wisconsin is. So, uh, you know, it's not without some turbulence. Obviously, there are a few uh, of our customer base that have concern. That's like, well, how you know, how are you guys sitting? Are you are you okay? You know, and the the answer for I would Rose could throw out a number, I'm sure, but for 99.9 percent, you know, Wisconsin banks are in a good good spot, a safe spot. Doesn't mean it's without challenges. As I was talking to Ken uh, from Capital Bank here just before, you know, we we are getting pressured. The margin is uh, shrinking, and uh, obviously we want to uh, keep our depositors happy, and we don't want to stress out our borrowers with increased rates. So it is a it is a very opportune time to be a banker to use our resources and intelligence to help manage and to help um, get businesses and homeowners and, and through this and Wisconsin banks I think are up to the challenge and are, are going to um, be there for their clients um, as, they, as they have been. Okay. Now Todd, you mentioned this in, in your uh, opening uh, response. So what do you see as a sort of a state and regional kind of effect from you know, these bank failures that are, or bank troubles that aren't they're not in the Midwest, they're on the coast, so. Yeah, thanks, and um, so I think the regional banking crisis is obviously the, the most important development we've seen in recent weeks. Uh, we've done some work on this, uh, to this question, and there's really, um, I would say the regional banks, it's hard to do a broad brush stroke, uh, kind of putting them all in the same bucket and worrying about them all in a similar way. There's quite a bit of differentiation across the banks, and I think this goes to your point about Wisconsin banks. So what I would say is we found three factors that really uh, are driving the vulnerability of, of, uh, of regional banks. And by regional, I'm talking about small and medium-sized banks that are generally under $250 billion in size. So these factors are how fast have their deposits grown in the last several years? Because some of them have had very rapid deposit growth, like Silicon Valley Bank, uh, was like 200%. Uh, have they experienced losses on the security side of their of their assets? So many many banks, these, many of these regional banks that experienced rapid deposit growth had to put that money to work, and they had to do it quickly. So they purchased long-term treasuries and mortgage-backed securities in the markets, and unfortunately, as the Fed started hiking interest rates very rapidly, they it turned out they bought at the peak of the market, and they now have losses on the asset side of their balance sheet. And, and the third factor is. Um, uh, the share of uninsured deposits on the liability side of the bank. So Silicon Valley is again the extreme. Silicon Valley had over 90% uninsured deposits. So, and that's obviously the most uh, prone type of deposit for a deposit run or a bank run. Because as soon as they sniff an issue with the bank's solvency, of course you pull your deposits and run to a larger and more stable bank that's too big to fail. So um, I would first commend the policy authorities. I think after Silicon Valley and Signature Bank, the Fed's new facility to give liquidity to the bank so that they could fund deposit outflows. There was an implicit um, backstopping of those uninsured depositors to try to lessen the fear, stabilize the outflows from the regional banks. So I think this was all um, excellent work by the policy authorities and it's managed to stabilize the system so it didn't become a broader banking crisis or a broader banking issue. Now to your question, we've moved from that acute phase, I would call it, at the beginning when Silicon Valley and Signature Bank went under, to um, a more chronic phase. Like how will this regional banking turmoil now affect lending and how it will affect the local economy, I think, to your, to your question. And I think 
the effects are going to be, again, very differentiated based on those factors I mentioned. Are local banks um, in that category of experiencing those vulnerability factors? Because if they are, they're likely to be much more conservative in their lending practices, get tighter credit standards, which would tighten credit, and of course that'll trickle down into, into weaker spending growth and a, and a slower economy. So I think um, it's going to be very um, specific to the, to the bank, and I think we're going to see, just like First Republic this week, these issues are going to pop up almost like uh, dominoes. It's going to be once the First Republic issue is resolved, one way or another, I think depositors and investors will start looking around for the next uh, bank that might look like Silicon Valley, might look like Signature, First Republic, on those kinds of vulnerability factors to say, okay, who's next? Um, I think um, that's why this crisis, if you want to call it that, or turmoil isn't going to disappear quickly. It's likely to be with us for several more months or even a couple quarters or more, but it's, I don't believe it's going to have credit crunch like the 2008 global financial crisis. It's going to be much more idiosyncratic, specific banks running into trouble. Um, and I think overall credit growth will slow, but I, and, and no one really knows the answer to just how big this will be nationally. Some economists believe it's going to be the equivalent of one or two Fed rate hikes in terms of its impact on the economy. I've seen estimates that it could shave up to a quarter percentage point of growth off the, off the economic growth rates in the US. That's already pretty significant when we're heading into a slowdown. So it's not trivial, it's definitely something the Fed and, and policymakers will need to consider. Um, I think it remains to be seen what the full impact will be, but it's, it's obviously not good news. Uh, it's gonna continue weighing on uh, the growth outlook in the second half of this year. So I'm gonna ask you a point blank question, but is the Fed doing a good job? Yes or no? Maybe. No. Um, why you're having to think about it? Okay, I think I'll, okay. I'll tell you why I'm thinking about it. Let's, okay, I, I'm sorry, I can't answer yes or no, and I'll tell you why. Because so many, so many economists in the profession agreed with the Fed at the time that inflation was transitory. So, and that makes sense because at the time, the last ten plus years, inflate, the trade-off between inflation and growth was very. So the Fed was looking at this, this um, peak in inflation, which they, they believed it was due to supply side constraints, which were temporary. They were looking at the uh, past historical data over the last 10 years, and they came to their conclusion. Where they did a bad job is they stuck to that view way too long, and they also gave bad guidance to the markets and to, and to investors. So I think they, were, they did a bad job in the sense of being too slow to change their policy stance when the evidence was starting to mount that their view was incorrect. So I think, I think their initial response, I might have had the same conclusion if I was in their shoes, but I would hope I would have pivoted faster than the Fed. Okay, now David, so uh, you know, obviously uh, interest rates have something to do with mortgage rates and you know, the housing market, but you know, is, it the, is it the interest rates or the supply that most worries you about the housing market? Well, so, I mean, they're connected, obviously, but um, I, I think the, the thing that is the, uh, the most persistent problem is going to be the supply side. I mean, uh, we've, got, we've got solid uh, unmet demand. We have um, millennials who logically and rationally stayed out of the market when they entered that phase of life where they'd normally buy their first home, right? Uh, you know, they kind of got dealt a bad hand. They were coming out of the out of the uh, Great Recession, um, you know, 
they, they had relatively high levels of, of student debt. Labor market wasn't very good. But here's, I mean, and, and so they may not have been able to qualify for a loan anyhow, but even if they could, why would you buy an asset when its value was, uh, was continuing to fall? And they really didn't bottom out until you got into uh, 2000 and, and, and tw uh, 2012, all right? Uh, about March of 2012, the uh, prices bottomed out and started, started rising. So uh, you, have, uh, you, know, you have your classic millennial who lived in the basement of their parents uh, looking for a job for a while. As the labor market improved, um, uh, the, the, the uh, supply really didn't, didn't respond. And part of that had to do with the fact that, that you had um, you know, some baby boomers who got to that stage of life about the same time when they normally would have, have done some right-sizing and decided, well, we're just going to we're going to age in place, right? So, so you you lost about a half a generation of of new supply in the existing home market, um, and and so what do we have now? Well, we 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 have healthy baby boomers. All right, I'm one of them, so I'm I'm glad to say that. Uh, healthy baby boomers who who uh, are staying in their homes longer, um, and uh, millennials who are who are who are clamoring to find homes and are at a disadvantage because they increasingly have to rely on, on, uh, on borrowed money. And so they have lower down payments, they're not as competitive when they go, uh, go, go into the market. So I think this is a persistent problem that's gonna, gonna be around for a while and I think, uh, I, I think mortgage rates uh, will, once inflationary, inflationary expectations come down, those mortgage rates will settle down. You know, they're in the 6% in the range right now um, but uh, th those, those will settle down. And, and, I, and I think a lot of the credit has to go to the Fed for, for, um, for, for making some progress on, on mortgage rates, or I'm sorry, on inflation. But um, that the, the, the shortage of housing that we have is gonna be with us for a while. It will work its way out, all right? You know, affordability is going down, so, so uh, you've got, you know, that'll, that'll help dampen some of the, the demand pressure but it's still gonna be a while before we get to a point where we have a, a balanced market and we don't have that, that uh, pressure on, on, uh, on prices. Okay, so Dale and Cynthia, I kinda wanna uh, use you two right now on this. So, you know, the state seems to have an urban or rural uh, divide in politics. And I'm wondering, is, that, is, is there an urban rural divide in terms of the economy, uh, you know, is, uh, uh, you know, here we are in Dane County, fastest growing county, uh, you know, uh, building cranes everywhere. Uh, you know, not so much, uh, you know, when you, when you go uh, out state, uh, south, west, you know, north. So is there a, are there two economies in Wisconsin? And should, uh, how worried should we be about that? Um, yeah, we do have two economies. Um, the, the rural economy generally in Wisconsin um, has lost young people, young families um, for over a decade now. So in terms of, of workers, um, they're really up against it in, in most cases. And so um, there's big struggles there. The urban economies generally have done better, again, because you have young people wanting to go and live in the urban areas, but that's where higher paying jobs are. So we, we have had this, this, this dichotomy. 
one of the things that, that's changing it somewhat um, to the, recently, and we don't know ultimately what the effect is going to be, but that is the, the telecommuting um, and the baby boomers who are moving from more urban areas to rural areas. Now we don't know if those baby boomers, if they're going to continue to work or work part-time and kind of help with that, that workforce, um, but, but that is going to, to help, help somewhat. Um, but the, 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 the migration out of urban areas has been, according to the Census Bureau, has been stark in Wisconsin since the census from April of 20 to, to um, July of, of 22, we had about 12,000 on net, 12,000 people leaving urban areas of, of Wisconsin, about 11,900 um, coming into rural areas. We don't know exactly who they are. Um, my guess is a lot of them are, are, are baby boomers, but, and we're seeing that somewhat across the country too, the outflow. So, the urban county or the rural counties, I, I would argue, have to figure out how to incorporate, if, if they are boomers, the the more you know fifty to seventy population into their workforce. Flexibility, part time, etc. Um, there's a lot of, of of institutional, a lot of um, knowledge there. In, in various industries that they can tap into. The rural economies can, can be successful, at least in the near term, if they can tap into that, that, that new population. Um, you know, the question is, how are they going to do it? Tough question, actually. <laughs> but I, I would say from, uh, I guess a little bit with labor market, uh, totally agree as far as uh, struggles. Um, I'm gonna just uh, touch on two, two points here. One uh, being uh, Wisconsin in general doesn't have a lot of mobility, meaning we don't have a lot of outside people coming into Wisconsin. Um, if it is, uh, it's for uh, new business, um, which is it's more in the urban areas and that type of thing. Rural areas, uh, if we see anybody move into our areas, typically it is that older generation that is ready to get out of an urban area and is looking for that piece of land and relaxation. Um, I will say there is still some struggles in rural areas with broadband and access and um, they still want the speed that they had in, in uh, urban areas. So uh, even though you may think this is an older generation, or they're an older generation that wants to be connected and be connected fast. So we do hear those complaints from individuals that move from urban areas and are now settling down in the smaller quaint uh, communities. Uh, the other thing regarding uh, labor shortage and uh, uh, hit on it well, we are seeing a lot of part-time uh, formerly retired individuals uh, taking uh, positions in rural areas. And uh, how fabulous is that? Because they're, they're great workers, they're knowledgeable, they uh, have a sense to show the younger generation maybe um, a little bit more work ethic. And I'm not saying we don't have a lot of uh, youth that have great work, et work ethic that we do. We just don't, in rural areas, uh, draw a lot of new um, younger generation. 
um, I'm in a very uh, densely populated agricultural area and uh, Generational farms are becoming a thing of the past. It's hard to hard to get uh, past that down and to make that work as, as uh, a new family. Um, and so you don't have the, uh, I was a farmhand growing up. I was raised as, uh, as a, I always tell my dad, I was raised as a boy because I did chores and I didn't know how to, how, how to cook or clean, quite honestly, because I was out uh, doing chores. But uh, how I dress, digress on that, most, Farmers uh, used labors, or we had labors of kids and things growing up that wanted to stay on the farm, and they maybe went off to college but came back uh, to work on the farm, and we don't see that a lot anymore. So what's happening? Um, what what other options if that place wants to, if that uh, family wants to stay in farming, they've got to look at innovation or other things. So we are seeing a lot of robotics and milking and that type of thing coming in. Um, but to put this in perspective, just uh, I know there's uh, some co-ops out here and can relate to this uh, very well. Um, for uh, one robot, so a robotic milker can milk 50 to 65 cows, um, handle it. And cows uh, train themselves and go, get, go through the line and milk themselves and might be milked three times a day, four times a day. To install, uh, go from a freestall barn to a robotic milker. Um, if you're just putting run, one robot in for the small farmer, by the time you get that robot and the computer systems and the infrastructure to put that in place, you're looking at about $270,000. Okay, where does a small farmer whose uh, milk price now is at 18 and a quarter, 100 weight, which is not really that different than it was 20 years ago. We had a good year last year, but it's back down now. Um, so, you know, you, your options there are, are Kind of limited, um, but you know, just just it, it's an option that a lot of farmers are going to. You stick three, four robots in, you can you can get um, a better herd size. But interesting, what I find about that, not to uh, kind of beat the the egg part up a little bit, but we saw farms growing and growing, and we still are. The average uh, farm is growing at six acres per year from year to year, and it's still growing its size. But I think given the labor shortage, we have just started to see some downsize and put in the milker and have less labor and control costs more. Um, so I'm curious to see where that goes, but some interesting things that we're seeing out in the in the egg sector right now. All right, so what, what's the solution to the labor shortage? Is it immigrant labor? Is it uh, more part-time flexibility? You mentioned, Dale. Is it uh, training uh, better child care? What are the solutions for the labor shortage? Yes to all of those. Um, <laughs> it really is. So, you know, we've talked a little bit about, about net migration. We, we have very little, relatively little net migration into the state. Um, and we look back to the 1990s, it was completely different. We had a net about over 200,000 coming into the state. Um, so we, we have that ability to, to attract people, but we haven't been over the past 15 years. Um, and, and you look at our, our demographics, if we don't change something about net migration into the state, whether it's um, through from other states, whether it's international, um, we're gonna be 130,000, 140,000 workers short by 2030. So that has to play a part. Childcare has to play a part because some of the research shows that, that the dropping out from the workforce 
has to do to some degree with child care. Unaffordable child care, um, not enough slots in terms of child care. Um, so that, and, and we know that's been a problem for, for 10, 15 years, that problem has to be solved. Um, so all of these things have to work together. Again, the, the, the getting seniors to remain in the workforce on a part-time basis, that's part of it. That's a short-term solution though. Um, you know, and that'll help in the short-term but long-term, it's addressing all of those, those other issues. Let's just go down the line. Uh, Professor Clark? Um, I mean, the labor shortage is something that uh, is a problem that's been building. There's no doubt about that. You look at the labor force participation rate uh, numbers in Wisconsin that uh, Dale pointed out uh, earlier, that's, that's, uh, that, that's certainly uh, emblematic of that of that problem, how you solve it, I, you know, I mean, one of the things that that we're seeing happening is, um, you know, firms are finding ways of substituting away from from labor. The example of the uh, robotics in in a, in a milk house is is, is uh, uh, one example of that. You know, go into a retail uh, establishment uh, and and uh, find a you know a grocery store that has. You know, has has a uh, uh, someone who is is uh, uh, checking you out. Every, they, they they've shifted to all of these automatic options. That only goes so far, though. And um, so, you know, I I, I do think um, uh, you know a reform to the immigration process that we have is absolutely necessary. We are we are you know. We're not getting uh, nearly the levels of uh, international immigration uh, into the U.S. Uh, than existed in the uh, in, in the 80s and, and even in the early 90s. So, so I think we need some reform to our immigration policy. Um, I think that that firms will will continue to struggle with with uh, with hiring uh, workers. And then, lastly, you know, I think we need to. To, to address some of the challenges we have uh, in some of our inner city schools. Um, and you know, they simply are, are, are not effectively uh, helping us to grow our, 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 our labor force. So um, you know, it's a multifaceted uh, problem, uh, but it's, you, know, it, it, you, you need some type of, of, of progress, uh, and, and I think, um, uh, policymakers need to focus on, on on options that will allow us to to uh, to grow the labor force. Otherwise, what we'll see is we'll see continued uh, increases in in uh, uh, wage rates, um, and and that ultimately will will uh, lead to you, know, you get this never-ending cycle uh, that will force uh, firms to uh, look for other ways to conserve on labor, and you end up with this this uh, worsening uh, worsening cycle. Okay, uh, I would just point out though that there's some in the room who may think that uh, we need to raise the, the rates, right? I mean, the bottom uh, uh, bottom 20% uh, got a boost in pay uh, in part because of the labor shortage and COVID labor shortage. You're saying you don't want to see a cycle of uh, the old inflation cycle where uh, wages were chasing inflation, right? Well, that's certainly uh, one of the risks of, of uh, having a very, um, uh, very limited supply of, of workers. Um, you know, you, you end up with uh, growing wage rates that then fuel inflation, 
and uh, you, you uh, can, you know, I, I don't think the Fed will let us get to the point where we have hyperinflation uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but, but I do think it makes it more difficult uh, to, to solve the inflation problem. Okay, Todd, so let's, what, how do we uh, solve the labor shortage? Small questions. So, okay. um, I, I agree with a lot of what's been said again. I, I would say, I think, touch on the international experience a bit more as well, because I think this problem is not unique to Wisconsin. Um, when I was working at the International Monetary Fund, we actually traveled to many countries facing similar demographic challenges. They were facing um, you know, s declining school enrollment, uh, you know, health centers in rural areas that were understaffed, and they we, had, uh, we were working with government staff to try to work through these questions. And there's unfortunately no easy solutions. Many options have been tried from tax and subsidies to try to encourage that kind of mobility. The experience was very mixed at best in a, in a lot of other countries. Um, one thing that has appeared to work uh, in some jurisdictions is, um, at least in terms of improving uh, women's entry into the labor force is subsidized uh, childcare spaces. And one way to do that, it, for example, uh, in Quebec, they, um, it's $11 a day uh, for childcare. So it's very affordable for a broad audience and it actually had a measurable impact. Um, they, um, in other countries, they've tried to give, um, thinking about the demographic challenge, they've tried to you know, have bonuses, to, you know, the baby bonus to try to have more fertility rates, very mixed at best. Um, so I think there's different angles to this problem. I think um, for me, having seen the evidence on uh, subsidized childcare spots, that's one way to increase uh, uh, labor force participation. Immigration is another uh, avenue that I think uh, should be seriously considered. Um, you see a lot of countries handling this very differently. Um, you know, in Canada, immigration is very high, but it's very hard to direct it. So what ends up happening is immigration leads to a bigger urban center, typically. It doesn't necessarily help the, the rural center. So how do you manage that? I mean, once people are in, in the country, they, they have, of course, they have freedom of mobility, they can work wherever they want. So um, the incentives have to be there to have people uh, decide you know, to, to take these positions. And then, and unfortunately, that's probably going to be partly wages. The relative wage is gonna to have to be attractive to induce people to say, okay, I'll take that sector over uh, urban manufacturing or something like that. So it's gonna be a mix of things. I'm afraid there's no easy answer here, but I think it is a mixture of immigration. Some smart uh, government policy can help. Um, and then just, you know, uh, automation, as was already mentioned, I think that's also critical, so, so businesses can continue. It's amazing, my father-in-law is a farmer, and um, when I visit him and I see his operation, I, you know, you have this stereotype of, of a par farming operation, he's a cash cropper, it's a big business. It's multi-million dollars of capital expenditure, he's got futures trading that hedges crops, he's like multiple farmhands, but even, one point he was um, spreading his cost over 10,000 acres uh, by leasing land in his area. So it was a big operation. And even then he was barely, you know, his margins were so thin, like to make that a, a profitable operation was still um, very tough. So it's a tough business. I think we're gonna move more and more towards automation and we're seeing that trend and uh, I think that'll continue. Okay, thank you. Uh, 
Okay, so we shouldn't be scared of AI, although I think AI could probably do a better job moderating that. <laughs> okay, so let's, uh, let's just uh, wrap it up here. You know, this is the economic forecast luncheon. So in the next year, you know, so we're slipping to the first quarter of uh, 24, the crucial uh, election year. What's your, what's your forecast, you know, you can use general terms, very specific uh, numeric uh, terms, but uh, you know, what do you see for the state and the region in the, uh, in the next uh, four quarters? Who wants to go first? Or I'll call on you. Okay, Dale, you laughed about your <laughs> lame jokes, so go ahead. So I, I, I guess I, I'm kind of looking at, um, you know, given the, the numbers that I look at, probably heading into recession, um, second half of this year, um, I think it'll probably be a little bit more than mild. I, I don't think it'll be, um, you know, a, a, it probably won't be a, a major recession, but I think we'll, we'll have to be heading there. Um, and by first quarter next year, we'll begin to see a, a move out of it. Again, the, the part of this is going to depend on how well the Fed handles this. And, and, and it, you know, again, we've talked about it, they're, they're in such a difficult spot. Um, the one thing that, you know, if, if, we, if we head in that position, the one thing that I, I'm really looking at, given our labor shortage um, is, are we, I mean, are we going to see the layoffs that we normally see? Um, you know, is, you know, we're, we're at two and a half percent unemployment. Um, our business is going to be willing to lay off workers um, knowing they probably won't get them back. Um, so that's gonna be a really tough decision for businesses if we head, if we head into recession. Um, what am I gonna do with my labor force? Um, do, do I take that pain in the short term, um, or you know, do I risk um, you know laying them off and then not getting them back later? So um, that that that's generally where I'm looking. Uh, you're absolutely right regarding laying off. So uh, at home example, so my son uh, is a heavy equipment operator and laid off during the winter months, and. Do you know how many job opportunities he had and how many things uh, were in his face and signing bonuses and so forth? So, you know, he was very loyal to his company and stayed, but it, it is going to be a, a problem. And I, I, I'm glad you said that because I didn't really even think of it that way. It was just, you know, uh, at home situation. Um, Regarding uh, banking looking into the first quarter, uh, I think you know by the end of this quarter we are gonna see a little bit of in increase in some credit problems, but I think it's going to be manageable. Uh, banks will have to be very uh, due diligent and watch their margin, um, but I think that's not something we haven't done before, and I think uh, you know we'll be resilient from that standpoint. Um, don't expect the housing market to change too much. Uh, difference that's happening right now than say a year ago when price home prices were very elevated you know we had some realtors that did just a fantastic job of, of giving examples of 
okay, yeah, this price is elevated, but rates are at an all-time low. Okay, you might overpay a little bit for a house, but compared to what you did two years ago when rates were at here and the price was at here, you really didn't end up spending any more. So it was a very clever example that they used to, to show that. Um, labor, uh, again, uh, will, will be a struggle. Um, um, and I agree, the short-term fixes, uh, some of the, the elderly um, are retiring uh, workforce. Um, I, I do, I'm still very, I've always been an optimistic person. I'm still optimistic that, uh, you know, yes, uh, uh, the R word and you hit on it, uh, what, what, how people define recession is so different from one person to the other. Um, I think uh, things will uh, continue to struggle for the, uh, the family that is more of a paycheck to paycheck, but I think yet uh, they will resound and get through it. And by the mid 2024, I think, uh, most American families are going to feel a little relief. And my last thing I'm going to tell you is um, to support the egg sec sector, just recently the University of Kansas, uh, Kansas Medical Center says if you drink three glasses of milk a day, you can prevent some aging brain symptoms. So there you go. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, make sure you buy the nine months CD special at the Merchants Bank of Kettle. Yeah, you great, can do great. that too. <laughs> uh, okay, all right. Okay, uh, Professor Clark, what's your outlook for the next uh, year in the first quarter of 24? I think uh, Harry Truman said he always was hoping to get a one-armed economist so, because they're always saying on the one hand this, on the one hand that. But I'm going to hedge a little bit. Um, I, I think at best we get flat growth, and that could be slightly positive, slightly negative. I think uh, there's probably a 50-50 chance that we will, uh, in the second half of the year, that we'll slip into recession. All right. Um, I'm not as concerned that it's going to be a, a, a deep recession, but uh, it probably will be the case that the National Bureau of Economic Research says, yeah, these two quarters uh, combined with the other uh, economic indicators we have uh, justify classification as a recession. Remember, first two quarters of 2022 were negative as well, but they were, they were uh, virtually uh, zero in terms, of, in terms of growth, just slightly negative. I think that, that there's probably a 50-50 chance, maybe even a 51-49% chance, um, if I want to get too bold here, uh, that, that uh, they'll classify uh, the beginning of a, of a recession sometime in the uh, second half of the year, maybe the fourth quarter, maybe the, the third quarter. I will point out we're not going to know for some time. Uh, the National Bureau of Economic Research takes a long time to, to make up their mind. Um, and uh, um, so it may be uh, this time next year uh, where we finally, uh, finally know whether or not we had slipped into a recession in the second half of the, of the, um, uh, the year. Um, you know, uh, I think inflation, as I said, is probably a, a tougher problem to, to, uh, to deal with than than the Fed hopes, but I think they're probably uh, pleased with the progress that they've made and are likely to, uh, to, to cease their, their rate hikes um, after one more uh, quarter point uh, uh, increase in the federal funds rate. Um, 
and so I think that we'll live with uh, inflation in the uh, 4% range uh, for, for, for some time before the, the hawks decide uh, we really need to, to, to raise interest rates again. So I think, I think it's more likely that, that uh, uh, you would see a, a decrease in the federal funds rate than an increase. I think it's more, uh, I think the, the if, if I give a point estimate, my point estimate would be they, they uh, increase a quarter point in their next meeting and then they don't touch it for the, for the remainder of the year. All right, uh, and then tell us where to, uh, you know, tell us where the pension funds are gonna go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks. So I agree with a lot of that. Uh, I think those are great points. So uh, I guess uh, my thinking on it, uh, and first, you know, trade secret of economists is that this, the the evidence isn't great that forecasting recessions one year ahead it, uh, that you know the trade is very good at that. So we need to be very, I guess, uh, cautious or humble about our forecasting of recessions a year ahead. But that said, I'm going to make an attempt anyway. So I think, um, as I was saying earlier, I believe in the second half of this year we're heading for a pretty significant slowdown from what we saw uh, even in the first quarter of this year. Um, I think, the, like as you were saying, I think the Fed likely, and certainly that's what markets are expecting, one rate hike left, and it's going to stop and pause to, wait, to see what the cumulative impact of almost you know five percentage points of rate hikes has, uh, what that will do in terms of the economic outlook, especially with the regional banking problem that we were just talking about. So I think that's the consensus view. I think it makes a lot of sense. Uh, my expectation in terms of uh, the outlook is the Fed's playbook, if I can start there, is that they are hoping for the soft landing. And the way to do that, and it really resonates with your story about your son actually, is that there's a record, almost a record number of vacancies for a per unemployed worker. Um, so because of that, the labor market is very hot, as we know. Like it's very hard to get people and, and businesses are very reticent to let people go. So the Fed, I think, is hoping to cool that without a big increase in unemployment rates. You know, just cool the number of vacancies out there, and that should take some pressure off wage growth and then inflation. So that's the that's the strategy. I'm a lot more pessimistic, unfortunately, because I think historically, when you've seen peak inflation rates of like last year, they were eight nine percent, even higher in other other countries. You don't come off peak inflation rates like that historically without a recession at the end. Um, usually, the playbook is in the central banks hike interest rates. Um, and then that leads to a slowdown in a recession. And eventually the inflation comes back down. That's the standard playbook, and I suspect we'll see some kind of dynamic along those lines. Um, what's really not known is whether this will be a soft landing or a hard landing, and, you know, in terms of a deep recession or a soft recession. Um, my view is that the recession will likely be a little, a little <coughs> deeper than probably the consensus view. I don't think we're facing a deep recession like 2008-9 kind of recessions. Like that's not in the cards at this stage in our, in our mind. But we could see something a little deeper than what uh, is the current consensus view. Um, in terms of the unemployment rate, you know, the, the, the national unemployment right now is 3.5%. That's a multi-decade low. There's really only one way for it to go. And even in the Fed's own projections, it's projecting that uh, we'll have an unemployment rate at the end of this cycle north of 4%, maybe four and a quarter percent. So historically, again, when you see the unemployment rate move by more than a half percentage point, historically, that's almost always been associated with a recession. So, um, 
so that's that's our outlook is that we're likely unfortunately to see um, a rough patch uh, in the second half of this year possibly into 2024 it's hard to time these things precisely obviously um, but that's the view um, I think I'll uh, I'll take the fifth on the uh, asset allocation decision <laughs> <laughs> okay well that's just another good reason to buy that CD special at the farmers emergency banking all right so that's gonna end our panel uh, then it's gonna be lunch and then we're gonna have our uh, uh, economist from Wells Fargo, Sarah House, is going to give us a uh, presentation. And so uh, I want to thank uh, Todd, David, Dale, and Cynthia. Thanks so much. And uh, thank all of you. And uh, so lunch is coming right now, and, and we're going to switch it up. Sarah, you're going to set you up. All right. Let's give a round of
and monetary policy is a, a famously blunt instrument. It's long variable lag, and so it's a it's a different it's a very difficult balance to to achieve. And as we've seen over the events of the past you know, month and a half or so, there's there's bumps along the way. So we certainly saw that with some of the banking turmoil. Well. So just to give an overview of, of where we see things, just kind of a little bit of a roadmap for some of the topics that we'll, we'll go through today. So when we look at the U.S. economy, I think you know, inflation is still very much the, the number one issue, and I think really in the driver's seat when it comes to the outlook, since that's what, what the Fed is, is looking most closely at, and I think it's still the, the number one focus. And there we see that inflation is still too high. The improvement that we have seen is pretty narrow, and so we're seeing that risk that you know, we're actually now three, this is the, the beginning of the third year, and we're pretty well above target. So there's the risk that it's becoming entrenched. And I think as much as attention is the supply side of the economy and supply issues have garnered over the past few years in terms of this inflation discussion, we, we have to acknowledge that quite a lot of the inflation we've seen has come from the very robust demand that we've seen over the past few years. And so when we think about how we're going to get inflation down, weaker demand is going to be a part of that inflation. Is the more painful way, unfortunately, to, to get that improvement. And when we look at the labor market, so right now it's overall strong, but I think we also have to acknowledge that that's part of this inflation issue right now, where we see areas like um, very strong wage growth. And so there too, there's there's some uncomfortable truths that I think we have to deal with that in order to bring inflation down on a sustained basis. You're also likely to see a, a weaker a weaker job market. So when we look at the outlook for monetary policy, already the Fed's done a lot. Um, we think that we'll probably see one more 25 basis point hike, so pretty consistent with, uh, with what the panel was saying. And from there, we see the Fed go on hold for, for some time and, and just kind of just, you know, see how the medicine takes and, and what that next move may be. And really just how the rest of the economy is, is holding up. So I think we've seen certainly housing has been hit by, um, by the degree of rate hikes that we've already seen. Manufacturing has been kind of the next uh, the next area to really feel the, the weakness and kind of exhibit some of the tightening and um, feel some of the pain of, of that tighter policy. But then the consumers come in there pretty well, and so that's what's kept the U.S. economy out of recession thus far, in our view. But we are starting to see cracks in, in the consumer, and so we are worried about the outlook for spending as the financial picture of consumers deteriorates. So uh, as I mentioned, glad I'm not the first one that had to, to broach the, the recession topic, but I think it is more likely than not that we will see the economy contract um, sometime over the upcoming year. So we're kind of seeing that contraction to happen in, in the second half of this year, probably the worst part of it in, in the fourth quarter. Just as we see weaker spending, weaker investment, that leads to squeeze on, on business margins, and that in turn further reduces investment, efforts to you know, hiring, vicious cycle that, that is a recession, but it's not a foregone conclusion. There are a lot of unique aspects about this environment, where, whether it's you know, the, the financial, whether it's the balance sheet position of households, whether it's everything from just the undersupply of housing that we've seen for you know, the better part of the past decade. So I think there's, there's still a lot of uh, different ways that, that this could go. And I will say, we'll talk a little bit about the Madison economy too, just kind of bringing in some, some other data how it fits in versus, versus the national picture. Okay, so starting with inflation, since that really is, I think, the, the 
first and foremost, what's, what's on the Fed's mind? And yes, they're watching what's happening in, in the banking sector, and I think they're increasingly concerned, or at least um, you know, worried about the, that pass-through of monetary policy, but ultimately it comes down to what's needed to curtail inflation. And what we've seen is that we have made progress on inflation. So we saw headline CPI in June of last year, it was just over 9%. Uh, right now it's up only, only 5% over the past year. So it's fallen almost by half. But that still leaves inflation you know, two to three times the Fed's target, depending on what inflation measure you look at. And you can see from even just the core CPI measure here, it's, it's come down, but not nearly as much as, as what we've seen in, in terms of now, I think if you look at where we've seen the improvement, it's also been really narrow. So if you look at the headline, so energy, so we've seen the overall uh, headline inflation has come down, uh, as I mentioned, just a little over 4 percentage points. Well, energy's accounted for about 3.5 percentage points of, of that decline, which is kind of lap the uh, Russia invasion of Ukraine. And then even when you look at the core, it's been relatively concentrated. So if you look at the red line there, that's goods inflation. So that's only about 25% of the core index. That's where you saw the most acute inflation as you did have a lot of you know, supply bottlenecks, some shortages of, of things like autos, um, but also just very strong demand for, for those types of products. And we're seeing that come down. But even within that core goods component, about 80% of that decline is just from vehicles. And so I think you can see some of the breadth when you think about just what's happening with services. So services inflation, really hasn't improved um, at all, dipped on a year-over-year basis just last month, but by and large, it's, it's still declining over the past year. Now, if you maybe don't want to think about this on an item-by-item -item basis, you know, kind of picking and choosing what, you know, what we should be looking at for to, to measure inflation, um, you know, whether food's in, food's out, energy, et cetera, you just look at the median rate of price growth over the past three months. So even just a more recent basis than, than the 12-month rate and talk about inflation. So the median rate of CPI growth over the past three months is running at 7.7% annualized rate. So it's still very, very hot, and really we haven't seen uh, we haven't seen a, a material improvement in any sort of broad way. And I think the risk there is that the longer this elevated inflation environment goes on, price setting behavior changes. Um, consumers' willingness to accept higher prices it changes. Think about it the past decade or so, businesses were very willing to pass on higher costs because they were afraid it was going to, uh, it was afraid it was going to, to weaken their, their customer base. But in some ways, consumers have now been, been trained to accept higher prices. And so this is a concern of, of the Fed, is that duration of inflation, not just the, not just the overall level. Now, Supply has garnered quite a bit of the attention around this inflation episode, and I think rightly so. Uh, if we think about you know, the Great Recession, that was very much a demand shock, where you had demand contract coming out of, of the financial crisis, where COVID was a supply shock. It was a supply shock in terms of labor, but also term, in terms of certain items that, that were needed. And so we did see these supply issues uh, contribute quite heftily to inflation. But demand's been a big issue, too. So this chart decomposes uh, core, uh, core inflation is measured by the EPC inflator. So this is the one that the Fed benchmarks their, their 2% target to. And what it shows is, okay, those blue lines are uh, the contribution coming from uh, from higher demand. So you're seeing not just the price go up for items, but also the volume sold. The supply side is is if you have prices going up, but the volume's going down, indicating that there's some shortage there. And at any given time, you have a little bit of both. Some of it's 
statistically insignificant, so that's the, that's the lavender part. But as you can see from what we're looking at here is that you still have, yes, supply is, is a big contributor to the inflation we're seeing today, but so is demand. So, and the demand portion has actually picked up in, in recent months and on its own is, is at the Fed's target. So even if you stripped out the, the supply-driven inflation. So there's a lot of work to do on inflation and it's not just going to be the supply, you know, increased supply, you know, the fact that uh, you, you don't have, you don't have a long, long uh, backlogs in, in manufacturing or you don't have a uh, hundred plus ships waiting off the port of Long Beach, but you know, there, there is a demand portion here that uh, I think we do need, that we do need to recommend. Now, when we look at another important driver of inflation, it, it is the labor market and the wage pressures that, that we're seeing out of there. So I think this is one of the ways that we're not going to escape this inflation environment, I think, without some pain, and that includes uh, a material slowdown and, and weakening in the labor market. So right now we're seeing employment costs, so this is not just your, your wages, but also the benefit portion of, of employment costs that are for roughly a third of, of total compensation. And those are only about 5% over, over the past year. Now, good news is we don't have to see wages get down to 2%, so hopefully workers are, are being more productive. That allows businesses to pay them fast, uh, to have wage growth grow faster than, than the rate of price increases. And so even when we account for that, that trend productivity, so that's what that lavender bar is, you're still seeing, even if you just look at the most recent quarter or two, you're seeing some improvement in terms of deceleration, or I guess improvement if you're if you're the Fed, not so much if, if you're a worker. But you are seeing some deceleration in wage growth, but we're still running above kind of that sweet spot of, of where the Fed wants to see wage growth if they're going to hit their 2% target and stick the landing. So, um, so I think that's, that's something to watch. We are seeing some wage pressures go off, but even even with the improvement we're seeing, you're still seeing overall labor costs growing um, too, too hot for the Fed's comfort. All right, so how can we, how can the Fed fix that? Well, one is to reduce demand. And this is really where the Fed's tools work. You know, so they're, they're, they're in the, um, they're in the, policy is, is a pretty blunt instrument. It works on demand. And we have seen demand start to weaken for, for workers. You can see that in the job opening, they're down about 17% have fewer small businesses saying that they have at least one job that, that's hard to fill. Those are coming down, but still elevated on, on a historic basis, even when we compare it to what you know, most everyone in this room would, would agree was a very tight labor market even at the end of the last cycle, 2018-2019 period. And as you can see from, from the right-hand side chart, or at least folks on this room, sorry, uh, or side of this room, um, is that you know by and large, it's, it's pretty, pretty uh, widespread issue. It's not just one or two industries uh, that are seeing still very elevated de demand. So if you look at where you see the job opening rate versus where it was even in, in that tight labor market of 2019, for, for most industries you still have openings well above that, that prior level. So it's, it, it is a, a widespread problem. Now as the panel discussed in depth, you know, what one way to I think help relieve some of this wage pressure would be greater labor supply. And we have some improvement on, on a cyclical basis. So this is the labor force participation rate. So the red line looks at uh, workers age 25 to 54. So these are called prime age workers to you know, likely uh, pass their, uh, pass their, finish their education, but you know, 
to still see younger, to retire even if they've done very well for themselves. And what we can see there is, is that you have seen that prime age participation. It's, it's recovered, so it's back to where it was before COVID. So you have seen workers come back into the jobs. The blue line is for older workers, so zoning in on 55 to 69 to account for you know, some of the demographic effects of, of you know, even within your, your over 65, that group is increasingly aging to the point where you know, it's really not realistic to expect them to, to participate in the labor market anymore. And what we've seen there is, is it's picking up too, but it's been a much slower recovery. And so um, when we think about just how, how much more workers can really step in, I think there's still scope to see some improvement there, especially with the job opportunities that there are. So that tends to act as a pull in terms of bringing workers back in, into the workforce. But I think what, what we've seen is it's been very slow going and with inflation two to three times, times the Fed's target, the Fed can't sit around and, and wait for uh, you know, child care issues to, to be solved or health care concerns to, um, to, to be relieved. Um, so I think that's, that's a challenge that the Fed is where it would be great to see supply come back because then you have businesses more able to hire, reducing those costs, but you still have more people earning a paycheck and going out and spending and, and kind of keeping, uh, and keeping growth going. But unfortunately, that's, uh, it's, it's a long process and the Fed just doesn't have time for that all right, so here's our outlook for, for uh, the Fed funds rate. So as I mentioned, we are looking for one more 25 basis point hike here at next week's meeting. And from there, we think that the Fed will be on hold for, for a while. So we actually have them cutting in December. We think the economy most likely will be in a recession. And we think at that point, it's going to be a pretty uncomfortable position to see unemployment climbing, you know, probably close to 4.5%, for the Fed to still be sitting on its hands. We think we'll also see at least enough improvement on inflation. We don't think we'll be getting back to, to 2% on the nose, probably until at, at least 2025. But we think we'll see enough improvement that the Fed will be willing to, to ease policy. Because otherwise, with inflation going down, they're going to be passively hiking in the face of, of, higher, of higher unemployment. So we do have them cutting come, come December of this year. And you know, kind of at a pretty similar pace to, to what we've seen in, in, prior, in prior downturns, but not going all the way back to zero. So in the inflation backdrop, they get more to a neutral stance, but they're not actually trying to get to an easy stance of policy given that. I think we will be dealing with somewhat elevated inflation for, for a while yet, but I think the, the weaker economic backdrop will be, will be willing to accept that it, it, it will come down with Again, in May, maybe there's a June hike. Um, I think the I think what we've really learned over the past month or two is that the, the terminal rate will be lower. That they are getting close to the the end of getting close to the end of the line because they are aware that they've done quite a bit. You know, so since last March, the, if you include the, the 25 basis point hike we expect here next week, that will have been 500 basis points of tightening in, in 15 months. So pretty pretty rapid. No policy works with a lag, and you know we're still really seeing those those effects um, with the, some of the banking turmoil being a, a prime example of that. So I think financial conditions and credit conditions are becoming increasingly important beyond just the broad economic activity. So just trying to gather how much we're seeing that credit tightening and really that intermediation between what the Fed's doing and how that plays out in, in terms of the real economy. 
And what we're seeing is that, so on the left-hand side, you have financial conditions, so the red line is, is kind of more of a purely market-based measure of, of that. And what we've seen is that, you know, conditions really tightened up in, in March, but since then they've, they've eased a little bit on the margin, signaling that you know, the worst of the, the crisis is past. Um, if you look at the right-hand side, though, if we just hone in on the, on, the, on the traditional banking sector. So this data only goes through the fourth quarter. So what we're seeing here is that banks were already tightening standards pretty aggressively, even before we saw some of the, the risks and, and concerns about credit tightening before the, before the Silicon Valley bank failure. And so when we look at it just in terms of when we traditionally see that degree of tightening, usually we're already in a recession. But in this case, we don't think we, we are. We're still seeing consumer spend. We're still seeing employers add jobs. But when you get that degree of, of tightening in credit, that, that really does start to slow that, that flow of, of credit. So it does make it tougher for, for businesses to grow and expand. Um, in addition to just higher credit standards, banks are reporting there's just less loan demand, too. And so it's not just purely the, the bank shutting off the spigots or anything like that. But I think given the, the outlook, I think you know, understandably uh, businesses and, and, and individual consumers are, are more concerned as well. And so you're seeing uh, the demand side of it be a factor. Questions on that before we talk about a little bit more about how the real economy is doing? Still easy, just a little over a year ago. 
And so I think they were too late to transition when, even when they realized there, there, was, an, there was an inflation problem, I think they, they thought the markets might need probably more runway to get ready for that and, and adjust to that change. And so I think they, that, that potentially could have saved them how much tightening ultimately has been done, perhaps how much will be done, but I think, I think it's, You're probably not moving anytime soon, right? Not giving that up. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that's a that's a nice little meeting with your your mortgage with this slide. So 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 what we're seeing in terms of okay, so we have seen the Fed move pretty aggressive pretty aggressively here, and what's been the first pain point has has certainly been been the housing market as uh, David did a great job of, of diving into a little bit. So we saw mortgage rates jump, and with that. You saw really activity come to not not a standstill, but pretty much you know, pretty slow to a crawl. You see anything from building permits coming down uh, roughly forty percent in the single family world, uh, existing home sales down about down about thirty percent with that jump in mortgage rates. But notably, you have seen you know flurries of activity here in the past couple of months, and you have seen mortgage rates stabilize. And I think you've seen some of the initial adjustment. You know, Buyers, sellers begin to digest these these higher rates to uh, to some extent, and I think you know when we did see mortgage rates drop at the tail end of last year, that did help uh, I think boost the, the home sales that got logged in, in February. So the, the existing homes those are based on closings. Usually those are purchases and contracts that lead to you know, two two months prior or so. So I think you, you can see that there are some buyers who are willing to step in um, when they're still a lot of demand out there. We're seeing some of the home builder sentiment surveys have, have picked up over the past couple months. And so um, to some extent, we think the worst may be over in the housing market. We're not expecting things to really go up, but I think a, a lot of that initial shock has, has been adjusted. But there was still a huge change in affordability. So this chart on the left shows your principal interest in mortgage payment as a percentage of income. And you can see, so at least again, sorry folks on this side of the room, um, you can see that that jumped to uh, higher than it was back in back in 06, 07, and it got there a lot faster and from a much lower base. And so you really have this this huge shift where even if you're just looking at the median existing home price nationally from a year ago, your principal and interest, so basically that mortgage payment would be at 32% year over year, and that and that's closer to 50% if you compare it to the end of 2021 before rates really started up. So I mean. I don't know about you, but I don't have 50% more income I'm spending on my, my mortgage. And so there's a big adjustment process that has to go on. Now, the rates have done the, the big part of that deterioration in affordability. And so something has to get, and that has been in home prices. And we have started to see home prices come down over the, the past six or seven months or, or so. Um, still up on a year-over-year basis, but um, we think there's probably a little bit more room to give there. But you know, probably only looking at maybe another 5% lower um, when we look at it on, on the you know, 2023 versus 2022, which is you know, pretty mild when we compare it back to what we saw in, in, um, in, 20, in 2009, 2010, where you know, cell phone prices declined about 25%. And that gets in part to some of the, the credit quality of, of buyers this, this round, very different loan standards in that capacity, but also I think just the, the pent-up demand that's still there 
with the fact that you know, millennials basically missed the, the last cycle. And so that's that's helped kind of put a floor on prices in addition to the fact that you have folks with two and a half percent mortgages who aren't moving anywhere. And so the inventory remains very low. And so and so that's you know limiting the, the decline we're seeing in prices, but that's also limiting the wealth hit in terms of, of the Fed's policy actions. So you know if, if your mortgage hasn't changed, you know you're not you're not really impacted by by these higher rates. If you're if you're not going anywhere, you're not looking to buy. So that's that's one of these lag effects where you know it certainly hit buyers in the market, but for for those of us who have a fixed rate mortgage, you know well under what what's going for now, no plans to move. You know, the, what we've seen here doesn't really affect us, especially as, as the, the price that has been pretty limiting. So that's helping hold up the, the home equity. All right, so looking real quick at manufacturing. So this is, you know, housing was really the first area to feel. So we've seen that really pull back over the past few months as well. So uh, if you follow the ISM manufacturing next, so that's been negative for, for six months in a row. And we're seeing it in the hard data too. So the actual value of, of production has, has declined in, in volume terms. And this wasn't, you know, initially, a, you know, we started seeing falling new orders. wasn't an immediate concern because manufacturers had a lot of backlogs coming out of COVID. So the fact that you know, order books were full, waiting on various parts or, or inputs. And so that kind of delayed, again, some of the pass-through of tighter credit, can, uh, of more costly credit, um, tighter credit conditions where they still had pretty pretty good order books to, to work off of. 
But as you can see from the chart on the left-hand side, you are starting to see those, those order books decline. So that's the uh, inflation-adjusted unfilled orders for, for capital goods. And so that's, those are being worked down. And we haven't seen job losses really in any sort of meaningful way in the manufacturing sector, but I think as you see those orders continue to come down, less backlog, I think that's, that's a risk that you know, employers might be holding on a little bit tighter to workers, but they can't hold on forever um, if, if you're just not seeing the, the, revenue, the revenue come through. So that's something to watch ahead as we see businesses pull back on investment as they are just trying to, to watch their bottom line, and just the investment side of it has gotten more costly Now, we haven't been in recession yet, and I think that's because consumers are still spending. So this is roughly 70% you know, of, of the U.S. economy. And we've seen you know, spending for goods has more or less flatlined over the past year, just as we pivoted more towards services. We're much more um, willing to go out and, and do um, more experiential spending. And with that, we've seen the share of spending on goods track down. You can see just how big of an adjustment this, this period was in terms of uh, in terms of the overall demand for goods and just what a what a shift it was coming out of COVID, which contributed to that inflation. Where again, some of this was was supply, but it was also just really strong demand for stuff. As we did have a lot of money in our pockets and a lot of time on our hands, um, but we're starting to see that shift um, continue with really a lot of the growth coming coming from services. So while consumers are still spending, the mix is. is now, part of the reason consumers are still spending is because you know, their finances are, are pretty good, at least in, in an absolute sense. And the spending's been helped along by the fact that households still have what economists have been referring to as excess savings, so basically savings above and beyond what we would have expected to, to have been in, in their savings account if the savings rate had prevailed at, at its pre-COVID rate. And so what we see there is, um, you know, at its height, we saw these excess savings total about a little over $2 trillion. Um, but slowly that's being worked down towards a little under $800 billion today. So that's been a big part of, of the overall rate of, of spending that we've seen over the past year, even as real income declined by, by roughly 6% in, in 2022. So we've seen a, you know, really a break in the, traditional, uh, in the traditional trend of spending where it's, it's based on how fast your income grows. So you can, you can temporarily spend more than your income, but it, it can't go on Credit has been a part of this too. So we've seen credit card uh, debt outstanding up over 15% over the past year. So twice the pace of nominal income growth. So nominal income growth is up about 6% last year. And so that's been a portion of fueling this, the overall spending. Now, we, you know, if you look at the chart on the right, so that revolving credit as a share of income, it's gone up, but it's not at anywhere quite crisis levels by, by any means. But we have seen we have seen that deterioration. So I think there's room for this dynamic of basically consumers outspending their income can go on, and that's what makes in some ways the recession timing or even just any sort of slowdown timing of spending very difficult. Is there's a lot of behavioral forecasting that you have to go into this in an environment we just really haven't seen in terms of this degree of excess savings or you know, still still a lot of room on on household balance sheets. But I think importantly is, is the direction things are going. So even though the level isn't necessarily at a point where, okay, die for a foxhole, consumers are gonna retrench right now and you know, a recession is going to happen tomorrow. Um, but I think the direction is telling 
And we think the, the consumer spending picture is going to get worse because like what we're seeing in terms of the business sector, in terms of that type of credit, is, is that we're also seeing it in the consumer sector. So whether it's for credit cards, whether it's for autos, credit's not only getting more expensive, but it's getting harder to ob obtain. Um, we're also seeing weaker demand for it. It's just consumers themselves are getting a little bit more, more cautious. And you're starting to see the credit, the credit quality begin to deteriorate a little bit. So overall delinquencies remain very low across product types, but they are starting to, to go up. So it does suggest that the consumer is getting uh, more stressed, even if, you know, in aggregate, still okay, but I think you are starting to see some, some cracks below the surface. All right, so I think with credit getting tighter, with those excess savings being run down, and you know, some households, they're not gonna spend all that excess savings, and they're also not spread evenly. When we think about the outlook for spending, it's going to increasingly rely on what happens with organic income growth. And for most households, where they get their income is the labor market. So we've seen job growth has been very strong in, in recent months and over the past year. We really haven't seen that, that much of a slowdown, but we think it's coming because we are starting to see here too some, some cracks underneath the surface. So for example, if you look at temporary hiring, really a kind of a marginal source of labor, you've seen that contract over, over the past year pretty pretty sharply. So that suggests that you're going to see just lower slower growth in, in hiring overall. And we are starting to see layoffs tick up. So you know there's been a lot of household names that have garnered a lot of attention. Um, but even if you look at the jobless claims, they're still at historically low levels, but they have trended up um, over over the past few months, suggesting that you know even amongst your non-householding firms, you are starting to see uh, at least some, some softening there and, and some, some more layoffs, uh, um, some more layoffs accumulating. So we think as you start to see that weakening in the jobs market, slower wage growth as businesses don't feel like they have to bid up those, those wages quite as fast to either get the new employee in the door or keep their existing employees in, in their seat, um, we think that you'll see weaker spending. Also, just as Households, even if you're not losing your job, you're maybe just a little bit more concerned about your uh, about your your job picture, and so just getting a little bit more cautious in, in spending. So we think that we will see a pullback here in, in the second half of the year. And so with household spending less, businesses cutting back on their investment, revenues of businesses are getting squeezed, and that's you know even as you're starting to see some uh, weakening in in labor costs, it's still relatively high for a lot of firms. That's their biggest source of labor. And we think as profits get squeezed, you're gonna see further cutbacks in investment, um, further caution on hiring, increased layoffs. And so with that profit squeeze, you are gonna see businesses cutting back on uh, on those hiring. And really that's gonna impede the, that further spending there. You know, some, some businesses' in investment might be saving their expenses, but that's hurting another business's revenue. So that's where you get that that vicious cycle of the recession. All right, so put some numbers around this. So we think we'll probably see in, in terms of pullback, probably somewhere here in the second half of the year, we think probably the, the worst of it will probably be closer to the end of this year in, in terms of the fourth quarter. Um, keep the track decline in GDP, we're, we're penciling in 1.2%. So to give you some context around that, you know, I think when we think of, a lot of us when we think of recession, so given that the past two were the worst in the post-World War II period, I think understandably we all get quite quite nervous, but those were, you know, in some ways those were the anomalies just in terms of the depth. So a 1% a 1% uh, contraction GDP would, would put it on the mild 
probably more akin to like a 1990s con contraction in, in that capacity. We expect a pretty minimal increase in, in the unemployment rate, it was minimal by historic standards. So with unemployment going up a little over 5%, and that has to do with some of just the demographic trends. We just don't have the same inflows into the labor force. And so it's just gonna be harder to, I think, get that increase in, in unemployment. But I think it was Todd who, who mentioned um, the, the, there's a rule called the SOM rule in economics, where basically if you see a half a percentage point increase in unemployment, um, you're in a recession because the unemployment rate is, it's, it's not a noisy number in terms of how it moves throughout the cycle. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty steady in terms of, you know, things are growing, the employment rate trends down, and then once that, once the direction turns, it's, it's because you're, you're seeing growth in it. So I think overall, um, you know, some, some pullback is needed. I think that's how you're going to get inflation stalled. And I think in some ways the Fed's gonna just keep rates where they are until you see uh, enough of that inflation coming down and, and we think it's gonna take that pullback in Okay, before I turn to Madison, um, in terms of the uh, economic data there, any questions on the US outlook? I know I left it on a really cheery note. All right, so just to go through some of um, some of what we're seeing in, in Madison and just kind of, you know, put a little bit of an outsider's view on it, but hopefully um, nothing nothing too um, too off base here. So I think when we look at more local economies, unfortunately we don't get the GDP data or anything like that as, as timely um, as what we do in the national numbers. But employment's a really good proxy for that. So if businesses, um, you know, if businesses are willing to hire, it's probably because they're they're seeing activity continue to. And so there we're still seeing you know, pretty decent job growth here in Madison, but also the state of Wisconsin as, as a whole. But like the US, we're, we're seeing it slow down. And the recovery hasn't been quite as quick as, as what we're seeing nationally. So nationally, employment recovered from its pre-COVID levels back in June of last year, like Wisconsin and in Madison. Um, it wasn't until February of this year that you saw the, the employment levels recover. Um, but at least in Madison here, the, the pace of growth has been pretty strong, a little over 3% over the past year. Now, I think in some ways hiring could have been even stronger if it wasn't for some of the labor challenges that, that were already mentioned. And so I think, you know, don't have the participation rates up here, but as you can see from the unemployment rates, you know, very, very low, and not just low relative to their, um, relative to, to the U.S., but even relative to pre-COVID baseline. So the U.S. has really just gotten back to its lows before COVID in terms of unemployment rates. Um, but in terms of Wisconsin and Madison, we see unemployment actually lower than it was back in 2018 and 2019. And if businesses don't have enough workers to, to find, that limits how, how strong you see that, that payroll growth. So looking at just a few of the sectors that, that we've seen, so um, you're still seeing a little bit softer hiring in terms of services. So goods-related goods sectors are, are still really the standout. Um, particularly when it comes to the construction sector here over the past few months, and in some ways um, might have been boosted by the, the seasonally warm weather we saw at the very beginning of the year where it kind of juiced this, um, the overall construction employment, which you can see in the blue line on the chart on, on the right. Um, but also still seeing you know, pretty strong manufacturing numbers as, as well. So the good side of the economy hanging in, even as we're seeing that, that transition in terms of spending. But I think there's also still a lot of upside when you look at leisure and hospitality employment. So it's down over the past year, 
but when we look at where it is relative to COVID, it's still down about 10, 10%. And so I think that speaks in part to, you know, just in some ways the overall labor shortage, but also, you know, the other job opportunities where the leisure and hospitality jobs, you know, they, they are the lowest paying jobs in, in terms of the major industries. And so you have had a lot of workers being able to find better paying uh, occupations or, or better, better paying employment. And so that's created a, a big hurdle to the sector in addition to the fact that you know, it was it was particularly hard hit by, by COVID. But I think it, that's an area where there's still a lot of upside in terms of employment growth over the coming year. Looking at the housing market real quick, so we have seen pullback in terms of single family uh, permitting activity as you've seen those mortgage rates rise, where you know, material costs are starting to come down, but not nearly as fast as the, the affordability hit, given that increase in mortgage rates. So it's just very difficult for builders to make that math work. And so we've seen in, in terms of that 12 month uh, average is kind of smoothing through some of the seasonal uh, fluctuations that you get, particularly in, in home building, you can see that single family uh, permits are, are down about 20% over the past year. But in Houston, we've seen really just quite a huge boom in terms of the apartment market. So this has been a, a national trend we've seen, but I think really the, the mix has been, uh, I think even more extreme in terms of that shift towards the multifamily construction versus the single family um, that we've seen not just since COVID, but really over the, the, the last cycle as well. And you're starting to see some of the, the single, uh, sorry, the multifamily permitting come down a little bit, but overall the apartment market's hanging in there pretty well. So you see vacancies continue to decline, so it's only about 2% in, in the apartment market. So that compares to 4% uh, rising in the US. So still seeing very strong fundamentals Rent growth is, is still very strong and, and accelerating, where you've actually seen it begin to roll over in the U.S. So the, the local multifamily market is, is still is still doing pretty well. Um, and then when we look at home prices, starting to see deceleration there is, is no surprise, just given again that affordability hit. Something something has to give, um, but it has helped in, in terms of improving the, the overall affordability. So um, the Atlanta Fed has some data around um, the share of income it would take to, to buy the home in, in a given area, and we saw that come down from a peak of um, a peak of 41% in Madison down to about 36%, so moving in the right direction, but like a lot of places, just it's, it's more expensive to get in a single family home here than it was before COVID, so before COVID that ratio was about 28%, so still dealing with the you know, huge shift in, in affordability since COVID and kind of this um, sprint for, for housing that we've seen, but we've seen some improvement over the past six months or so in that capacity. Okay, and the last slide um, I'll, I'll leave you with is, you know, I think uh, the panel is a little bit more downbeat in terms of, of the demographics, and I think that was more alluding to the state, but at least in, in Madison, you know, the numbers are, are, are you know, pretty good in, in my view, and I think population is very important. We think about sort of medium-term growth, so you know, population growth, that's your local demand, especially for services and even for, for some goods. Um, but it's also, of course, your workforce. Um, so very important as, as we think about, okay, just beyond this cycle, how is, how is Madison positioned? And overall, it's pretty good. You know, we've seen roughly 1% population growth, so you know, double what we're seeing, double what we're seeing nationally. And at least here in the metro area, it is a nice mix of both domestic immigration, but also international immigration in addition to just the, the natural increase. So a lot of places don't 
So it's usually, you know, maybe they're benefiting from, uh, from international migration, but you're seeing domestic outflows or domestic inflows, but you know, not direct, you know, no real international in migration. But here it's a, a nice mix of still seeing you know, pretty decent pace of population growth, which can be good for more of that medium-term outlook for, for growth in the global agenda. So I'll go ahead and stop there. Census forecast is recession. <laughs> All right, stay here with us. Thank you. All right, thank you. Let's give Sarah a round of applause. All right, uh, for those of you who have bad sight lines, uh, we're going to have the video and the PowerPoint distributed uh, at a later date, and anybody who registered will uh, get that in their email. So uh, uh, thanks. Uh, Cassie from the Bankers Association for doing the video. Thank you to the Bankers Association for all your work. Uh, mm -hmm. Let's hear it for the Bankers Association. <laughs> and uh, thank you, Wells Fargo. Thanks for uh, bringing Sarah. Poor Sarah didn't get a lunch, but uh, Bobby will be taking care of that later on, I'm sure. Anytime you go to, uh, uh, anytime you go to Charlotte. All right, so uh, I want to thank all, all the groups that helped with this. Uh, the North Central States Regional Council of Carpenters, the uh, International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 139, Wisconsin Farm Bureau Federation, the Construction Business Group, the Wisconsin Technology Council, the Wisconsin Transportation Builders Association, the Wisconsin Hospital Association, the Wisconsin Grocers Association, the Wisconsin Builders Association, the Wisconsin Counties Association, the Wisconsin Realtors Association. And thanks to our panelists who were here before, and thanks to all of you for attending. And uh, send your reviews to me, good and bad, and we'll uh, refine it, and uh, we'll see you next year at a location to be determined. Thanks. Everybody.